Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Marco Sassoli. I am professor of international law at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, and I'm there the director of the Department of International Law and International Organization. Today, I would like to speak to you about the field of application of international humanitarian law. You know, international humanitarian law is the law protecting victims of armed conflicts. It only applies to armed conflicts and therefore it's essential to know what is an armed conflict. And unfortunately, this will take us an entire lesson because armed conflicts do not in exist in abstracto. There are simply two kinds of armed conflicts, international armed conflicts and non-international armed conflicts. And this will be also the occasion to explain uh, the different rules uh, applicable to, on the one hand, international and on the other hand, non-international armed conflicts. The difficulty being that we are in midst of a development where the law of non-international armed conflict comes closer to the law of international armed conflict, but no one knows exactly where we are standing. And this is obviously very important in practice because, as you know, most armed conflicts today are non-international armed conflicts. So this distinction between international and non-international armed conflicts is regrettable and astonishing from the point of view of the people affected by armed conflicts, because if you are uh, tortured by uh, the enemy or by your own forces, or if you are bombed by your own air force or uh, the air force of another country, or if you are starved by your own government or uh, a foreign government for the people affected, the problem is exactly the same, and they would have the need for the same protection. But from the point of view of states, this is a fundamentally different situation, and perhaps we have to look a little into history. The laws of war, at least modern humanitarian law, after the Westphalian treaties, have developed exclusively for international armed conflict. States, which were already at that time, and many are still now, very uh, keen of their sovereignty, they had necessarily to accept that rules of international law govern armed conflicts between one sovereign and another sovereign because this was not possibly an issue covered, covered by the law of only one of the two sovereigns. While originally sovereign states, and you know that sovereignty started of being sovereignty of a person, the sovereign, uh, would never have accepted that there are rules of international law governing how they may fight against rebels, insurgents, how the fighting either between the subjects of a sovereign or between rebel subject of a sovereign against his or her own sovereign be governed by international law. And still today, states consider that these are two very different situations. May I give you an example? Uh, if I, in my country, serve in my armed forces and a neighboring country attacks my country, then both countries accept that if I kill soldiers of the neighboring country or if neighboring country soldiers kill me, um, I benefit from prisoner of war status and I may therefore not be punished for murder under the domestic law 
of one of the countries, even if I fall into the power of the country, uh, the soldiers of which I have killed. Obviously, this is only the case if, while fighting, I respect international humanitarian law. While if within my country I start a rebellion, even if I perfectly comply with international humanitarian law, and I only kill government soldiers, and I take all precautions not to affect civilians, nevertheless, if the governmental forces capture me, I will be punished for murder. And this is true in every country of the world. There is no country which considers that somehow to kill government soldiers is a mitigating circumstance, while all countries of the world have accepted the Third Geneva Convention protecting prisoners of war in international armed conflicts and in international armed conflicts precisely uh, prisoner of war status means that you cannot be punished for having killed enemy soldiers. So we have to live with it that states still today consider that international armed conflicts are something different than non-international armed conflicts. However, they have accepted uh, since 1949 that there are rules of international humanitarian law which automatically apply to non-international armed conflicts and this branch of humanitarian law, which in the treaties is still rather limited, is expanding and no one knows exactly where we are standing. And different factors blur the distinction between international and non-international armed conflicts. First of all, it is often very difficult, and we come back to that, to determine whether a certain situation is an international or a non-international armed conflict, because we will see that the question is not how many countries are involved, but who are the parties to the conflict. Second, international human rights law has fortunately a growing importance for the protection of people, including in armed conflicts. And obviously, under human rights law, there's no difference between international and non-international armed conflict. Third, following a development which has been started, in my view, by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, in particular in the fa famous Tadic case, today, nearly everyone, including states, consider that the customary law of non-international armed conflicts is quite similar to the customary law of international armed conflicts. The International Committee of the Red Cross has made a study uh, about uh, customary international humanitarian law, and it has come to the conclusion that for the conduct of hostilities, for instance, most of the rules inscribed in treaty law for international armed conflicts in Protocol Additional 1 to the Geneva Conventions are customary both in international and in non-international armed conflict. And the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was particularly concerned by this problem because uh, it's a big challenge to classify the different conflicts in the former Yugoslavia, whether they were international or non-international. And so somehow their solution of facility was to say, we don't care. And in most decisions, this is what they say. We don't care whether it's international or non-international. Anyway, this behavior was prohibited and is criminalized by customary international law. And interestingly enough, states have accepted this tendency. So for instance, in the 
statute of the International Criminal Court, we have still two different sections for international and non-international armed conflicts in Article 8, which is the article on war crimes. However, they are very similar. Contrary to what we would have said 30 years ago, if I had spoken to you 30 years ago, I would have told you that unfortunately the concept of war crimes exists only for international armed conflicts. Not because I would not like it for non-international armed conflicts, but because states have accepted this in treaty law only for international armed conflict. And this is today clearly no longer true. So, let us have a look on the rules which are applicable to those two categories of conflict. If we go into the treaty law, in international armed conflict, the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, which are accepted by all states, apply and one of the two additional protocols of 1977 Protocol Additional 1 applies as treaty law. In addition, we have a great number of what I call sectorial IHL treaties, which deal with the prohibition or the limitation of a certain weapon, or with the protection of cultural objects, or cultural property also. Uh, uh, or the protection of children in armed conflicts. And originally most of these treaties were made for international armed conflicts. And obviously we have a large branch of customary international humanitarian law applicable to international armed conflicts because this is where rules of behavior in warfare were born, at least in modern international law, because we have to be conscious that in the pre-Westphalian system, this distinction between international and non-international armed conflict is nearly meaningless. And the same thing is true in Islamic law, because states are not really an institution in Islamic law, and in other parts of the world too, um, the rules of behavior in armed conflicts are not, were traditionally not divided in this way. But in the uh, modern international law, which grew out of European public law, there was this distinction, and as wars were quite uh, unfortunately uh, frequent, a lot of customs developed. In non-international armed conflicts, we have only one article of the four Geneva Conventions, the famous Article 3 Common, which means that in every Geneva Convention, there is an Article 3, which has exactly the same wording, and which applies to non-international armed conflicts. We have since 1977, but this is not yet accepted by all states, but by more than 160, uh, Protocol Additional 2 to the Geneva Conventions. However, this Protocol 2 is much more limited in text and in detail than Protocol Additional 1 of 1977. So, even in 1977, states which made those treaties, despite the proposal of the International Committee of the Red Cross, to have the same rules for both kinds of conflicts, states insisted to have a much more limited protection. So we see the progress we have made in the last 40 years, because today states accept that there is largely, but not totally, the same law which applies. Then we have common principles which may not be mentioned in the treaties because states were so obsessed by their sovereignty that they didn't want to mention them. For instance, the distinction between civilians and combatants. That's a fundamental principle of international humanitarian law. Uh, 
Why isn't it mentioned in the treaties? Because you would have to use the term combatants and states insist that there are no combatants in non-international armed conflicts because no one has the right to use force against his or her own government. Nevertheless, the principle of distinction applies. The same is for the principle of necessity, proportionality, the prohibition of unnecessary suffering, which can be derived from the principle of necessity. Or to give you another example, um, the fundamental rule that only military objectives may be attacked. You will not find that in the treaties for non-international armed conflict because states did not want to codify that because they are afraid that if you admit that certain things, say an army barrack is a military objective, this could justify an attack by rebels on army barracks. And no state in the world would like to justify that. And every state hopes that uh, private citizens will not attack army barracks. We have also a growing number of international humanitarian law treaties, which there are still few, but in recent times we have more and more, which apply equally to international and non-international armed conflicts. For instance, the 1999 uh, Second Protocol uh, to uh, the Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Property applies equally to both kinds of conflict. We have also treaties on the regulation of weapons, which now apply to both kinds of conflict. And as I said, at least according to the ICSC study on customary international humanitarian law, largely the same rules apply to international and non-international armed conflict. And the International Committee of the Red Cross made a very serious analysis, at least of the official practice of states, what they declare. And indeed, they declare, criticize, instruct very similar rules in international and in non-international armed conflict. Now, let's come to a comparison between the two legal regimes, the law of international and the law of non-international armed conflict. There are traditional differences and, as I said, a contemporary tendency to bring the two branches closer to each other. The traditional differences are, as I said, that for non-international armed conflict, state have accepted only less detailed and less protective rules. And traditionally, an important difference was that protection was not based on status, but on actual behavior. Let me explain this. In international armed conflict, to know who may be attacked, you have to determine the status of the person. And if you are a combatant, you may be attacked. And if you are a civilian, you may not be attacked. And even a combatant who rests, who makes a break, who enjoys the landscape, he may be attacked as long as he does not either surrender or is wounded or sick. So what is decisive is not the behavior of the combatant, but their status. He is a combatant and may therefore be attacked. While in non-international armed conflict, traditionally and according to the wording of the treaty law, it's the actual behavior of the person which counts. Those who do not or no longer directly participate in hostilities may not be attacked. And those who directly participate may be attacked. So we don't have a combatant status in non-international armed conflict because no state, as I said, 
would accept that the combatant's privilege. What is the combatant's privilege? It is, as some people have called it, the right to kill. I don't think that humanitarian law gives a right to kill, but simply it does not prohibit combatants to kill other combatants in an international armed conflict. And it prohibits states to punish enemy soldiers for having killed their combatants. That's the combatant privilege. And this doesn't exist in non-international armed conflicts. Therefore, prisoner of war status does not exist. There are no prisoners of war in a non-international armed conflict. Another important regime of international humanitarian law for civilians are the specific rules on occupied territories. And obviously, you cannot apply those rules to a non-international armed conflict because you couldn't determine who occupies the territory of whom. A non-international armed conflict traditionally occurs on the territory of one state. I would also add, and this is very often forgotten, that an essential difference between the law of international and the law of non-international armed conflicts is that the law of non-international armed conflict is also addressed to non-state actors, to armed groups. And therefore, this is at least my opinion, but it's very often neglected in the debate, the rules on non-international armed conflicts must be more uh, summary, less detailed, and some protective regimes could not function because an armed group cannot comply with them. And as these rules are addressed also to armed groups, we have to check every time we claim that there is a certain rule which applies to non-international armed conflicts or every time states adopt a new rule, we have to check whether this rule is realistic for an armed group. Assuming the armed group is willing to comply with humanitarian law, is it able to do uh, so with a certain rule? And if it is not, we better don't adopt this rule because unrealistic rules don't protect anyone and undermine the credibility of the entire uh, branch, which is international humanitarian law. Okay, so we see that there are traditionally and still today important differences. But as I said, there is a tendency to bring the two branches closer to each other. Allegedly, the same customary law applies and on two important issues. There is a tendency to apply a kind of status to fighters. I explain myself. As I said, there are no combatants in non-international armed conflict. But the reality is there are members of an armed groups who continuously fight. Traditionally, the idea was, okay, they may be attacked if and for such time as they directly participate in hostilities, otherwise they are civilians. But today, on two issues, when may people be targeted and when and under what procedure may people be detained, there's a tendency to make an analogy with the law of international armed conflict and to claim that fighters may be targeted not only when they directly participate in hostilities through a specific act, but also, like in international armed conflict for combatants, at any time until they surrender or are otherwise or the combat. And this tendency has even been accepted by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which has elaborated with a group of experts uh, guidelines 
for the understanding of the term what is direct participation in hostilities. And in these guidelines, the International Committee of the Red Cross admits that members of an armed group, but not all members, only those members who have a continuous fighting function are not civilians and therefore do not benefit from the rule which says that civilians may be attacked only if and for such time as they directly participate in hostilities. And some states call this the unlawful combatant status. They say, again, this is thinking by analogy compared with the law of international armed conflicts. They say in a non-international armed conflict, there are no combatants. But if someone behaves like a combatant, he or she has the disadvantages of combatant status without having the advantages, because the advantages of combatant status exist only in international armed conflict. So this is an unlawful combatant. That's another terminology for the same effect, which is that uh, fighters are not civilians. And I must say, unfortunately, this is reasonable, because otherwise everyone in a non-international armed conflict would be a civilian. And therefore, the principle of distinction would be meaningless, because you could no longer di di distinguish between what and what, if everyone is a civilian. And if you look at the reality of modern non-international armed conflicts, to say, for instance, that Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are civilians is simply unreasonable. The second issue, which in my view has to be strictly separated from the first one. The first one is, when may a fighter be attacked? The second issue is, uh, when and according to what procedure may a fighter be detained? if such a person surrenders or falls otherwise in the power of the enemy. And here again, there is, and I would say unfortunately, a tendency to make a certain analogy with the law of international armed conflicts. And again, to call such fighters unlawful combatants, and then to say, once an unlawful combatant falls into the power of the enemy, such an unlawful combatant may, like a lawful combatant in international armed conflict, be detained for the duration of the hostilities without any judicial procedure. And in international armed conflicts, this is true. A prisoner of war doesn't have a right to habeas corpus or to detain a prisoner of war you don't need a judicial procedure or an individual determination. By the mere fact that you belong to the armed forces of the enemy in an international armed conflict, you may be detained until <coughs> the end of active hostilities. And we have to be conscious that this is a very exceptional rule. This means that some people may be detained for an indefinite time, because we don't know when is the end of active hostilities, without any individual decision or judicial control. But in my view, this very exceptional regime applies only to international armed conflicts. And I must say, I disagree with those states and scholars who want to apply this regime by analogy to non-international armed conflict. My main reasoning being that the facts are simply different. In an international armed conflict, it is clear who is an enemy soldier. I mean, in the Second World War, you knew who are the German soldiers because they have a German uniform. And if they are captured, what should the judge determine in a habeas corpus procedure? While, say, today in Afghanistan, how do you know that someone is a Taliban? They all look the same. So you need a procedure to determine who may be detained, and this must be a procedure uh, determining what's the danger of this person or whether this person has committed a crime. But I have to tell you that 
there is a growing approach, including by states, to say, no, we do it by analogy to the law of international armed conflict. This whole debate, I hope you understand, shows us that the initially humanitarian idea to apply the law of international armed conflict by analogy to non-international armed conflict, because there are more detailed and more protective rules, has now been used by some states and scholars to deprive people of protection because the protection in international armed conflicts, at least of combatant, is lower than what would be applicable under the normal rules of human rights law. Okay, now we have to, as we see, that there are still differences between international and non-international armed conflicts, we have to clarify what is an international and what is a non-international armed conflict. This is the difficult exercise of classifying conflicts. First, the classification is not left to the parties. It's international law which decides whether a conflict is international or non-international. Obviously, international law, as you all know, remains largely a self-applied system. So finally, if a state says, this is not an armed conflict which happens on my territory, you cannot oblige the state to uh, adopt another position. But other states or international organizations have the right to have another interpretation of this question of international law. So, let's look at international armed conflicts. International armed conflicts are traditionally defined by Article 2 common to the Geneva Conventions. So, in every Geneva Convention, there is an Article 2, which reads in Terralia uh, that the present convention shall apply to all cases of declared war, and today we have no longer declared wars, or of any other armed conflict which may arise between two or more of the high contracting parties, even if the state of war is not recognized by one of them. So, Article 2 Common clarifies that to be international, an armed conflict must be a conflict between two states. We come back to the exception of National Liberation War. Do we need a minimum level of violence? The traditional answer is no, because uh, states, the normal situation fortunately between states, is that there is no violence at all between states. And so the famous commentator to the Geneva Conventions uh, in the commentary published by the ICSE, Jean Pictet, has written, the first shot makes international humanitarian law applicable. And the first prisoner captured is already a prisoner of war. This is not totally uncontroversial because uh, states obviously do not want to be drawn into uh, something which is called an armed conflict if there are simply minor uh, border clashes. I would say if there's violence between the, the armed forces of two states and this violence occurs not by mistake, but according to the will of the governments of the two states, then humanitarian law must apply even if there is a very small level of violence. While obviously, if there are de facto agents, secret agents involved or an armed group which is under the control of a state, then a higher level of violence will be necessary. As I mentioned, Article 2 abandons the old concept of war, but theoretically, if there is an armed, if there is a war, then international humanitarian law applies, even if there is no violence. And Article 2 common, so in each Geneva Convention, this Article 2, includes also a paragraph 2, 
which states that the convention shall also apply to all cases of partial or total occupation of the territory of a high contracting party, even if the said occupation meets with no armed resistance. If there is resistance of the state to be occupied anyway, the situation is already covered by paragraph 1 of Article 2, because there is an armed conflict between the two high contracting parties. So the second paragraph, what it really adds, is that even if there is no armed resistance, international humanitarian law applies to belligerent occupation. In 1977, states, the newly independent state, insisted that national liberation wars be treated like international armed conflicts, and this is accepted in Article 1, Paragraph 4 of Protocol Additional 1. The idea being that well, at that time, decolonization was fortunately already over, but somehow retroactively it would be clarified that a conflict in which a people fights for its right to self-determination against the colonial power is not an internal armed conflict of uh, the metropolitan country, but must be covered by the law of international armed conflict. So Article 1, Paragraph 4 says today that international armed conflicts include armed conflicts in which peoples are fighting against colonial domination and alien occupation and against racist regimes in the exercise of their right of self-determination. Many people have criticized this provisions saying that it introduces a use ad bellum consideration, a legitimacy consideration into the applicability of humanitarian law. I should simply answer, nevertheless, once it's a national liberation war, both sides have to respect exactly the same rules. So, international armed conflicts are conflicts between states and National liberation wars, in practice, national liberation wars don't have a great importance because uh, obviously it's not a very useful starting point if you want to get the respect of humanitarian law by a state. First, you have to tell that state that it's a colonial dominator, an alien occupier, or a racist regime. Uh, these are international armed conflicts. Now let's come to the non-international armed conflicts. It's uncontroversial that a much higher threshold of violence is necessary for having to have a non-international armed conflict. Violence within countries is unfortunately a very frequent phenomenon in every country there are some acts of violence and the police fights against these acts of violence and it would be unfortunate to call all such acts of violence the first shot, always an armed conflict, and to apply international humanitarian law instead of the much more protective rules of human rights law to such situations. So, to have an armed conflict, and this has been confirmed by the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, in particular in the Haradinaj case and the Boschkovsky case, the two criteria are a minimum degree of violence, A, and B, a minimum degree of organization of the armed group involved, because you cannot respect humanitarian law without being, as a party to an armed conflict, a minimum organized. And if you, these two criteria are fulfilled, then there is a non-international armed conflict. Protocol Additional 2 to the Geneva Conventions has a higher a threshold of applicability because there the, the rebel armed group also has to control part of the territory 
and the conflict has to be directed against the governmental forces of the territorial state, which means one, fighting between different armed groups on the territory of a state are not covered by Protocol 2, and what is called extraterritorial non-international armed conflict. For instance, the fighting in Afghanistan between NATO member states who support uh, the Afghan government forces and the Taliban in Afghanistan is not covered by Protocol Additional 2, at least according to its wording. And finally, the whole of international humanitarian law can become applicable to a non-international armed conflict in two situations. One is if there's a recognition of belligerency. That's a very old rule. The government may recognize belligerency of the rebels and then the entire international humanitarian law of international armed conflict applies, but you may imagine that to avoid legitimacy of the rebels, at least the last 150 years, there, have not, there has not been any such recognition of belligerency. The second way in which at least parts of the law of international armed conflict can enter into force in a non-international armed conflict is thanks to what Article 3, uh, Paragraph 3, common to the Geneva Conventions, calls a special agreement. It encourages agreements between the government and the rebels, which put parts of the law of international armed conflicts into force. And there have been such agreements, for instance, in the former Yugoslavia, in Bosnia, or, uh, and uh, in uh, Sudan. Now, these two regimes, international and non-international armed conflict, one of the greatest problems is that it means you have to classify the conflict to know which rules apply. First, the first question which arises is, is every armed conflict that is not an international armed conflict perforce a non-international armed conflict? Traditionally, we called non-international armed conflict internal armed conflict or civil war. Now, you cannot say that in Afghanistan there is an internal armed conflict. It's very international. There are many states participating in this conflict. Nevertheless, legally, it's an armed conflict not of an international character. And I remind you of the wording of Article 3 Common. It doesn't say internal armed conflict or non-international armed conflict. So even my terminology in this lesson is not totally accurate. It says, in the case of armed conflict, not of an international character. Which means, every armed conflict, which is not defined by Article 2 common, which is not a conflict between two states, or Article 1, Paragraph 4, a national liberation war is perforce a armed conflict not of an international character. Now, this being clarified, there are problems of classification. First of all, there are what I would call the traditional internationalized internal armed conflicts. This can happen in two ways. Either there is an internal armed conflict but one of the parties, the rebels, are controlled by a foreign state. And there, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia has correctly said that what counts is obviously not the formalities. If de facto two states fight against each other, one state through de facto agents through an armed group which is under the control of the foreign state, then this is an international armed conflict 
What is controversial is what is the standard, whether it is uh, effective control or overall control. Uh, I think this is not so important. What is important is there can be an international armed conflict even in a situation where apparently there is simply fighting of a rebel armed group against the government. If this rebel group is in reality controlled by a foreign state. The other form of an internationalized internal armed conflict is an internal armed conflict as we had it this uh, three years ago in Libya. There were insurgents fighting against the government of Colonel Gaddafi. This was clearly a non-international armed conflict. And then a certain number of NATO states intervened in that conflict with the mandate by the Security Council to protect the civilian population. And then we had two conflicts. One conflict was the internal conflict, which continued to go on. And parallel, in parallel, there was an international armed conflict between Libya, on the one hand, represented by its, at the time, government, and on the other hand, those states intervening with the authorization of the Security Council. A much more tricky situation is when the, a part of an existing country declares its independence. Then the question whether this is an international or non-international armed conflict depends on whether this in the, you recognize this independence or not. And obviously, as long as the conflict goes on, this is precisely the controversial issue. So there will be no agreement on this issue. And therefore, often the only way to find an agreement on the applicable humanitarian law is to conclude a special agreement between the two parties. This has been, for instance, made between Croatia and uh, the, at the time, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, when there was a controversy whether Croatia was already an independent state. Then there may be what I call transnational non-international armed conflicts. This also sounds like internationalized internal armed conflict. The only difference is that foreign states do not intervene uh, to help the rebels, but the government. And this remains a non-international armed conflict. And therefore, today, the armed conflict in Afghanistan is considered to be a non-international armed conflict because states there's no state intervening to help the Taliban. There are only states helping the government, and therefore this remains a non-international armed conflict. A situation which is controversial is the case of foreign intervention, not directed against governmental forces, but without the consent of the territorial state. So one state fights against an armed group on the territory of another state without the consent of that other state. The majority opinion is that such a situation is governed by the law of international armed conflict. It's not necessary that you fight against the armed forces of another state uh, to have an international armed conflict. The mere fact that you use force against the territory of another state without the consent of the government of that state is sufficient to make the law of international armed conflict applicable. A minority opinion is that the law of non-international armed conflict is much better adapted to this situation because it takes into account that the real fighting is against a non-state actor and as both sides have to have the same obligations, the law of non-international armed conflict is better adapted and the real party to the conflict is precisely the armed group and not the other state. Be careful. Even under the second approach, this wouldn't mean that under the UN Charter it's lawful to use force on the territory of another state. This may still be an armed attack, 
But here the question is only which rules of humanitarian law uh, apply. To conclude, I would like to stress uh, what I said a few minutes ago, that what is very specific to non-international armed conflict is that there are at least one party is a non-state armed groups. And non-state armed groups are bound by international humanitarian law, but we have always to be careful to check whether new rules we develop or new customary law, which is traditionally created by states, is also realistic for armed groups. Otherwise, these groups will certainly not comply with those rules. And I think there must be much greater international efforts to engage armed groups to obtain their respect of humanitarian law. And here, the fight against terrorism has been a setback because today, very often, armed groups are considered to be terrorists. And therefore, any contact, even by humanitarian organization, which, with such armed group is considered to support terrorism. While as soon as there is an armed conflict, there are two parties. And if you want to obtain the respect of humanitarian law, of non-international armed conflict in such an armed conflict, you have to have a dialogue with both parties. And I don't think that this legitimizes the behavior of these armed groups. Obviously, a world without armed groups would be a better world, but a world without war would also be better. But we discuss, at least in this lesson, about the law applicable to such unfortunate situations which are armed conflict. And the law of non-international armed conflict applies also to armed groups. And Therefore, we cannot ignore them. Thank you very much.